Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land, the House of Sin and Studio Stand On, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. This is the OST podcast, original soundtrack on Sin Nation. Catch us live from 7pm every Tuesday on Sin Nation. We are Erin and Paul. We're here on Sin Nation. And for today's very special episode, our first episode, we'll be looking at the slightly cultish, maybe a little bit pretentious side of film. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, they're popular movies in their own right. Some of these are my favourite. I guess we should have a little bit of a preface, actually, Mm. that um, I'm a pretty much now completed and graduated film student. Um, And Erin has also done a little bit of study in that field as well. Yeah. So I want to say I'm qualified, but I'm not as well. But I think the difference, and this will be a really fun and interesting dynamic that plays out in our real lives as well, um, in our real lives as well, rather, I think you're a bit of a film snob, Paul. Yeah. And you're um, really open. I like to say film buff, but uh, <laughs> people like you call us film snobs. <laughs> <laughs> He's on the defense. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll be looking at a, a couple of different uh, films today, um, varying in popularity, varying in critical opinion, timeless classics, commercial classics, some mm. might call them. Um, but I think, yeah, everyone's got different opinions about them, so it should be really interesting. Yeah, so we're going to look at three different directors as well um, that I guess <laughs> film students like myself do kind of put up on a bit of a pedestal mm. um, for for like good and for worse. Um but in, yeah, in kind of these, the six movies we're going to be looking at, there are personal favourites of ours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to get political for a quick moment as well, <laughs> on that note of them being put up on a pedestal. Funny enough, all these directors are white men. I think that yeah, says a lot about what film I mean, define as good cinema. Yeah, totally. Um, I've been in the field. <laughs> I've been watching <laughs> film students for like nearly three years now, and it's definitely the case. Mm. Um, lots of them do put white, um, mostly straight storylines and narratives on a pedestal. They're good movies, but, you know, there's um, there's so many amazing queer and, um, you know, LGBT-centred films that are out there. Um, one movie we're going to be looking at later is actually about uh, a culture that is not a white culture made by mm. a white man. So that's going to be interesting to talk about. But the first director who has made that movie is Danny Boyle. Um, you may know him for his zombie movie 28 Days Later or the thrilling... Uh, thriller, everyone can't get out of their brains 127 hours. Um, I think Danny Boyle really likes making movies with numbers in the title. <laughs> uh, except for the sequels, obviously. There's lots of times and dates. Anyway, his first, uh, I think his two most popular movies um, are probably the 2000 breakout classic Slumdog Millionaire, which absolutely demolished the Oscars, uh, and the 1996 book adaptation, Train Spotting, mm. which I feel like, Aaron, you have a bit of a personal connection to. Yeah, out of all the films that we're going to go through today, that's probably one of my personal favourites. Again, as you alluded to, Paul, we will be looking at some more diverse films throughout our season and our time here on OST, but I think this is a good place to start. Especially, um, we'll try to focus in on the sound as much as we can and not get distracted by the little details of the film that oh, you and I tend to do. because that's what I'm going to do. That's what yeah, I'm here to do. Yeah, you're absolutely going to do that. So I'm here to reel it in and talk about what we're here for, and that's the music. That's the music behind these films. Well, it's actually kind of interesting that we're starting with train spotting because in the research for this um, show, train spotting is at the number one spot for every list that's like the best mm. soundtracks of all time. Um, and 
funnily enough, I'm a film snob. I'm also a music snob. I collect vinyl. Um, You're can just you the believe? worst person. Literally the worst You're scum of the earth. The worst. Um, Should I, we do a little rundown of Train Spotting for those who may or may not be familiar with the film or need a refresher? Perhaps? Yeah, totally. Um, so it was released in 1996. Uh, it stars who were then kind of uh, not the most well-known actors who are now kind of big names like Ewan McGregor, especially the other Ewan, Ewan Bremer, <laughs> uh, Johnny, <dare> you? <laughs> Johnny Lee Miller, Kevin McKidd, uh, Robert Carlyle and Kelly McDonald. There's kind of a, uh, what can you say? There's kind of a theme between all those last names. Um, so Train Spotting is set in Scotland um, and it features lots of music from the UK mm-hmm. and those kind of areas like New Order, Blur, Atomic, Brian Eno, Damon Albin and Primal Scream as well. Primal Scream being a, Scottish band as well. Um, this movie is pretty uh, still under the radar in terms of um, other films we'll be talking about later. So it didn't really win all the best awards, but it's been nomin- it's been chosen as probably number ten in the top one hundred best British films of the twentieth century, and it was Oscar nominated for best screenplay. But um, I think that number ten spot in the best British films of all time is kind of telling about how good that movie is. But the plot is set uh, four friends from Edinburgh, Scotland, deal with their abuse of heroin and deal with the consequences of their drug use and the lack of their own responsibility. Mm, Just on that note, perhaps maybe a cheeky content warning. We Mm. will be discussing, I guess, or alluding to themes of drugs and drug abuse in this film. So if that's not for you, feel free to switch off for the next five minutes. Or if you're listening on podcast, do skip ahead um, because it won't be doom and gloom forever. However, yeah, we will be kind of focusing in on scenes that um, relay these moments and Mm. the music behind them. I think that note of it being a under the radar film just plays into that idea of it being kind of like an indie classic, a cult mm. film classic. Yeah. Um, yeah, never obviously reached the commercial success of some of the films that we're and going to get into later. I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, yeah. Number one being the accents um, in mm. the film is actually a, a struggle for Americans to actually understand what mm. any of them were saying. There's a really um, infamous bar fight scene that happens, I think, towards the end of the movie where they're just talking in nothing but colloquialisms and deep accents. They actually had to um, re-record the audio for that conversation mm. because the Americans could not get it. See, that's they, so funny. They couldn't catch on to any word. I find that so interesting, um, and I feel as if that's an indication towards laziness as well. Absolutely. <laughs> because, um, I mean, my so my history <laughs> with train spotting, I guess, started with the, the novel, the Irvine Welsh novel mm. that it's modelled after. And the thing that captivated me most about that book was the writing style of, of Welsh mm. and just the, you know, the tone and the, the dialect that he includes. And I mean, yeah, it's it's not an easy read if you're looking for, if you're reading in plain English, if English is um, what you're looking for. Yeah, you're reading in the dialect, but I mean, that's the whole, that's the story. That's the yeah, vibe totally. of it all. Um, but I, I was I was th- thinking about this movie um, when I was first kind of getting into movies. Um, Train Spotting was one of the first kind of films that I watched when I was becoming a student and trying to broaden my horizons in terms of um, the movies I watch. Um, I think when you're first kind of getting into movies, or even if you're trying to become a bit buff, if you're trying to buff up, going to the film gym, as it were, I think um, Train Spotting is a really good first watch, but it's a really confronting first watch too. Yeah. Um, uh, as we said before, like there's a content warning for what happens in this film. And if you have any issue with your scenes of drug abuse, uh, there's even child um, death as well in this film. It's really confronting. 
uh, not only that, the editing style is really, really weird. It's not very normal. You're not going to get from scene to scene in a really normal way. There's lots of random freeze frames out of nowhere. Um, it's edited, uh, I think, very kind of hastily in that kind of way. Um, so if you're really, you know, if you're trying to kind of broaden your horizons, I think it's a good movie to watch. Um, especially because the accents, they're really thick. And they're, if you're trying to understand the accent, I think it's a good place to start. Well, as you say, the accents. So the film centres around Edinburgh locals, born and raised. My family are from Glasgow. Um, you wouldn't know from my accent, however. No, but, <laughs> but yeah, if you but met Aaron's were... parents, <laughs> you would <laughs> yeah. know. Well, I mean, yeah, I think my family and my parents were a big part of my attachment to this film um, and the sound as well specifically so Trainspotting was always one of those fable films in my family that I had to watch you know mm. alongside Braveheart blockbusters like Braveheart <laughs> yes absolutely um, but yeah coming from I guess you could say a family of moderate art house enthusiasts maybe my dad more so um, this was kind of like the holy grail Trainspotting was and yeah. Um, yeah as I said the book the language was so captivating to me and I didn't know I think just the, th the thematic nature of it, it, it kind of appealed to that sense of connection to my roots. I wasn't sure if, if that was what I loved about it or if it is that juxtaposition of the rawness and the romant the mm. romanticism of the themes that it ta tries to tackle. And I think um, that the sound, is to bring it in and hone it into the soundtrack of the film, I think that is the most significant factor in how those raw emotions are portrayed and, and yeah. if we start to look at I guess the soundtrack specifically it's very indicative of its time but totally yeah it's, um you know blurs in there primal screams in there new order well I like um, this idea that you've got Paul that you expressed earlier is is that it's you know the soundtrack is kind of split into three kinds of eras of music and you've got your 70s and 80s represented in Lou Reed and Iggy Pop um both notorious for their their drug antics, yeah. But I think um, <laughs> I, I love the throughout the film the devotion to Iggy Pop. Yeah, <laughs> by, yeah. By it's, the, it's, the soundtrack isn't just something in the background no. that links it to the time. It's actually a part of the the world that they're building of Edinburgh. It's kind of mm. almost like it's you know nonfiction representation of train of uh edinburgh mm. um because you know these these guys are big fans of iggy pop and there's also uh the brit pop aspect of the soundtrack that comes into it so there's lots of blur and pulp um even damon alban features twice on the album he's as blur and as damon alban um so you know they're toning up that uh brit pop stuff that was kind of gripping britain at that time um and still uh, kind of is in a way, but, you know, Oasis were kind of blowing up at that time as well. And yeah. then um, not shortly after, um, you know, Oasis really did blow up with Morning Glory and stuff like that. So um, that side of it is represented, but there's also the dance and the electronic music side. Yeah. Um, well, that would be the third component of the, of the soundtrack that you allude to. And then the UK is just leading the rave scene at this time in the late mm. 90s. I mean, Underworld features on, on the record. Um, yeah, the, all the club scenes throughout the film as well, where there is just this pounding bass, and I think it's so true of what British and Scottish clubs look like um, in the time. Not that I was there, but um, <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah it's a popular of, image. You get a that sense, we're... though. You can get yeah. an idea of that's probably exactly what it was like. Mm. Cool. Well, let's maybe talk about some other key moments that we really enjoy. Yeah. The soundtrack moments, kind um, of highlights. 
as I said before, I um actually recently got this on on vinyl, this album. I found it. Uh, yeah, you said that. Yeah. Did I? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But I, that that makes it so much better, and I've been like rethinking about the movie because I got it. I'm totally um, roasting you, and you didn't even realize. God, there's so much of this to come. This oh season's going to be. Oh god, this is going to get so much worse. Yeah. Anyway, um, the kind of the soundtrack takes it through chronologically, so it goes through the movie as the songs appear. Um, so it obviously opens with Iggy Pop's song, which we're going to be hearing from in just a sec. Mm. But that opening chase scene, uh, where Mark and um. What's his name? Who, who Who's the friend it? that's being chased with? It's not... Um, it's not Spud, is it? It's not Spud? It, was it... Um, Ren- the uh, the what, other friend. The other one. There's Mike the and one. another friend. Sick and boy. Yeah, yeah. Simon. They're, they're running away from someone. And the, that just is how the movie starts. Um, it's a really amazing way to open the film because uh, you, you kind of learn about the characters in the way they're running away, um, in the way that Mike... Um, Mark... Um, he nearly gets hit by a car and he, he doesn't just, you know, keep running. He stops to look at the driver and he laughs, laughs at his face. Mm. Um, that's just kind of the best way to sum up that character. I really like that, especially with the choose life monologue that's going on over it. Mm. Um, another song I really like from the con- the soundtrack, which might be my favorite is the Brian Eno song where, um, <laughs> Mark, um, loses a suppository down the toilet and he chooses to dive in after it. Uh, and he kind of falls into an ocean that's in the toilet. He's obviously high and tripping at the time. Um, but it's such an interesting visual, and the music kind of fits that so well. You know what? On that, um, this kind of vaguely ties into one of the moments that we might discuss a little bit in the next uh, oh, segments. yeah, toilets. <laughs> Danny Boyle and toilets. Danny Boyle likes a good toilet and he a good... He loves people falling into toilets. Poo diving scene. Yeah, he's a big <laughs> fan. Um, two of my favourite moments, I think, from Trainspotting in terms of the soundtrack would have to be Renton's overdose scene mm. where Perfect Day by Lou Reed is playing. Again, really similar to that Brian Eno segment where it's just this huge juxtaposition. Um, and again, I think that factors into the kind of romanticisation of... of the events, but it's also very jarring in a way that makes you incredibly self-aware and, and aware of what the film is trying to convey. Mm. Um, and then the exit music with Underworld Born Slippy. I mean, I'm just a massive rave head, so <laughs> obviously I love this track, but um, that moment is so iconic where Renton is, he's made the choice and <laughs> spoiler alert if you haven't <laughs> seen the film, but um, when he makes the choice to take the money and ditch his mates and he's going through the choose life monologue over mm. again and it's a perfect bookend to the film. I think. Uh, as you can probably tell, Aaron and I love this movie like quite a bit. Trainspotting is really important to us, so we're probably going to wrap it up. Uh, I wanted to talk about Trainspotting 2. That's probably another 50 minutes of talking <laughs> we could do. Um, but that Born Slippy song, mm. that makes a reappearance at the start of Trainspotting 2. Yeah, and then it closes with Iggy Pop as well. Yeah, too. so that's like perfect book ending by Danny Boyle. You know, he even mm. though the films were made like 20 years apart, they still had that kind of connection through the soundtrack, which I think says a lot about how iconic this album and the music is. Hey, Aaron, does it sound uh, kind of quiet to you here? Now that you mention it, yeah, it's a little bit. That's due to media law and some copyright laws, so we couldn't contain music in our podcasts. If you want to hear some of the tunes that we've been playing on our show, you can head to our Spotify playlist. You can find them on our Facebook page at OST Sin. Cool. You're welcome. Thank you. Doesn't it 
Don't make it proud to be Scottish. It's shite being Scottish. Welcome back to OST on Sin Nation. You're with Paul and Aaron, and before we just talked about Train Spotting, now we're moving into Danny Boyle's other films, probably most critically acclaimed a popular film, Slumdog Millionaire, which was released in 2008. It stars Dev Patel, Frida Pinto, and Irfan Khan. It features music by um, MIA, also A.R. Rahman and Nicole Schreisinger of the Pussycat Dolls. Scherzinger from the Pussycat Dolls, which we'll get into a bit. Um, this movie was kind of a big deal in terms of awards seasons. It took home eight Oscars, uh, including Best Picture and Best Original Song, so it's probably um, good that we picked this because it, it is such a popular film. And it took home 11 Golden Globes as well, hmm. which is a lot for a film. Uh, in terms of plot, the film is about a young boy from the slums of Mumbai, India, who ends up winning Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he kind of, through interrogations with the police, um, teaches him about, you know, what it was like to be from the slums and how, you know, being street smart is actually the best kind of smart. I think it's really interesting to compare these two films by Danny Boyle. I mean, first, the first thing you notice perhaps is the editing style is very similar. There's that choppy, the cuts that you've referred to earlier in the last segment, but then um, there's also that kind of shock value that Danny Boyle seems to enjoy. And yeah. and in a lot of commentary, I guess, again, on class. He was interested in working class UK and Scotland in, in train spotting and here um, a lot more racially charged kind of third world commentary from Danny Boyle. Yeah, white man, yeah. <laughs> white UK man. Um, it, it's interesting how, I, I guess, the kind of way that he reeled um, white people into enjoying the film is having it through the very relatable um, gaze of who wants to be a millionaire. It's like that's a almost a wide worldwide phenomenon. Um, I think it'd be harder to engage with wider audiences if it was anything else, but I think the who wants to be a millionaire angle kind of helps well, other people be, relate. I could be wrong here factually, but I think the actual launch of the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came after this film, maybe a few oh, years after, okay. I think. So I want to say, if that's correct, I might have to fact check, but if that's perhaps a catalyst for well, okay. a real-life change, I think that's really interesting. That's I can't okay. remember the name oh, of the winner. Um, but yeah, definitely using visuals and, of course, sound and music to yeah, appeal to Western audiences. You kind audiences. of think the soundtrack's the way, main way that there's that kind of... Um, the, the barrier that is culture kind of links uh, wider audiences to it, especially by using music by M.I.A., who's a rapper from the U.K., but she also has heritage in, in Sri Lanka, so she has that heritage of, um, of Eastern Asia, um, that kind of... Especially in that scene where Paper Planes is playing, um, you can kind of, as a white person, you can link into that more by having that Asian and um, white kind of uh, musician linking you in. Mm. Um, when So the the soundtrack was compiled by A.R. Rahman, who also sings on the song Jai Ho. Um, he was trying to go for a soundtrack that sounded like mixing modern India and old India. That's a quote from him. Um but that the film and soundtrack uh, isn't about India or Indian heritage, if that makes sense. So he wanted to link the two together, but not have it specifically, when you listen to the music, think, oh, this is about India, this is about culture. Um, he said in quotes that this story could happen anywhere. 
yeah. with this music playing. Um, of course, Danny Boyle, he seemed <laughs> seemed a bit um, fanatical with the soundtrack. Um, he was quoted in saying he hated sentiment, and he told Raman, uh, never put a cello in my film, hmm. <laughs> in quotes. Cellos um, suck. So he wanted a pulsy score, yeah. um, which is basically train spotting, but mm-hmm. also what you can hear in this with paper planes and things like that. Um, I think living in 2008, it was pretty hard to escape this film and the uh, song that came with it, which was Jai Ho. Um, it's catchy and also has the lead singer of the then really popular Pussycat Dolls. Like they had Doncha and then um, When really I Grow Up. Really when I grow up, that music knowledge. Um, when I Grow Up and then Buttons as well. Like they had those three really big songs and then she features on the song and then that blows up and then it's kind of perfect for 2008. Yeah, I think, so admittedly, I don't think I saw this film in full when it came out, but I was obviously really aware of it and probably through that Pussycat Dolls song being blasted on the radio everywhere and, you know, they were really, there was a lot of promotion um, Mm. going on commercially for that at the time. And I think, interestingly, we had a discussion about the Bollywood structure that that, um, I guess Danny Boyle maintains throughout throughout the film's plot but I think as well that uh you know that pulsy score really contributes to that in a way so I mean credits for some level of authenticity I would provide but um I think it's a really interesting discussion about yeah how how that kind of maintains because Jai Ho finishes the film and like ends so a dramatic two-hour film and it kind of ends on this massive dance number well that's the thing when I watched it for the first time in full recently, I didn't realise that the song didn't finish with the Pussycats version of mm, J-Hope. It ends with the Bollywood version. And I, I keep saying Pussycats, but it's just Nicole, isn't it? It's just, it's, yeah, well, yeah. it's just Nicole. The Pussycat dolls are featured as writers, but I don't think oh, they're on it. Okay, right. Maybe? Okay. Well, I just find that so interesting that may, may, like a Mandela effect, somehow I've interpreted the, yeah, the film finishes um, with that. It, I think it happens a lot with kind of like international films. They kind of remake... Uh, a song for Western audiences. That's what they did for this. So mm. it was originally sung by famous Bollywood singers with A.R. Rahman as well. But um, because the West can't like something if it's not by another Western person, they um, got Nicole Scherzinger to sing on it um, yeah. to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting too if we keep thinking about that idea of drawing contemporary Western eyes to you know, what is in fact a very complex social and economic system in India and by contextualising that with Western music and therefore creating a Western blockbuster, um, big money. You think about Lion as well with Dev Patel. Dev Patel as well. Um, Again, made by a white director who went to India and filmed people and then didn't pay them properly and then came back. There's a lot Interesting. Going on. Now it's just po- <laughs> now we're just a politics show. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome back to OST here on Sin Nation. You're with Aaron and Paul. That was some Jai Ho, You Are My Destiny by A.R. Rahman featuring Nicole Scherzinger of the Pussycat Dolls. Um, which is probably the most 2008 sentence you could ever say. Actually, just really quickly as well, this is a bit, um, I'm being greedy with my words now, yeah. but <laughs> when this movie came out in 2008, I have a friend um, who's a dear friend of mine named Jay, 
who's Indian. So everyone used to just scream J-Ho at him when we were in grade six in 2008. Um, oh, that's and horrendous. Like, I'm so the sorry. Worst time of his life. So, Jay, Jay, if you're listening, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. really, really sorry. <laughs> anyway, our next film. We're looking at a new director now. Yeah. We're going to do a double header. Um, Edgar Wright with Shaun of the Dead is yes. our film of choice. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of this movie and this trilogy, um, but this was the first film in the trilogy, so it was released in 2004. It features the most British cast you could ever think of. Nick Frost, Simon Pegg, Kate Ashfield, Lucy Davis, Dylan Moran, Bill Nighy, and Martin Freeman. Um, it features the most British music of all time as well. <laughs> this the, the Specials, the Smiths, uh, Queen as well in there. Um, and the plot, it's pretty simple, um, a kind of... Not special, not weird or unspecial. Sean uh, has a plan to make it through a zombie apocalypse that involves saving his mum, his girlfriend, and drinking a pint at the pub. Which is pretty Which, much like every Edgar Wright film. For, pretty until, much. Yeah. Until uh, yeah. Um, plot, and it ends with a pub. It's probably pretty every much. Edgar Wright film. Yeah. Um, so this is um, a part of a tr- kind of like a anthology trilogy that Edgar Wright's Made called the Cornetto Trilogy, which includes Hot Fuzz and The World's End as well. Aaron quite likes The World's End. Yeah, The World's um, End is probably my favourite. But Paul, can you please explain what in God's name is the Cornetto Trilogy? Because when I first encountered that... It's really it's really stupid, actually. Um, the only connection between all three films is that the leading character likes to eat Cornettos. Mm. So in Shaun of the Dead, the movie starts um, with a really... A sequence I really love, um, and that's where Ghost Town by The Specials plays, um, and that also the name of that song plays into it because he's it's Sean walking through London, uh, and it feels like a ghost town, um, and that kind of parallels later in the film because even in a zombie apocalypse, you can't tell because London's so boring and so vapid and empty um, that even when an apocalypse is happening. Nothing's happening. Is it London or is it his life? I think he's well. Yeah, more that's so that's the kind of um, self-referential stuff that's going on in this. I think mm. Simon Pegg was kind of in a bit of a rut at the at that time in his life, and that kind of comes through with the story. Anyway, <laughs> that's so not where I was going. With when he was walking to, he goes out to get a cornetto, uh, and that's what happens in Shaun of the Dead. In Hot Fuzz, they pick up cornettos from the milk bar, and in The World's End. The end of the trilogy, you expect a really great appearance from Cornetto to appear, and they threw it into the last five minutes of the movie. <laughs> or Cornetto rapper just br- brushes through the breeze. I That's all great. that happens. I think it's great. But I think, <laughs> um, I guess if we say some Edgar Wright-isms, that would kind of be one of them. The, the kind of, yeah, his unique one would be the Cornetto trilogy. But um other things that appear throughout all of his films, and especially these three, I think you have the visual dynamics that are <laughs> everywhere is a pub. There's a pub everywhere. But all, yeah, um, everything, any like climactic event takes place in a pub. Um, but there's also kind of that, yeah, the sound, obviously the sound. And I mean, we, my Scottish ancestors and my Scottish family are looking down on me when I keep saying British because they're <laughs> different things. But yeah, very English kind of soundtrack and very... Yeah, I guess a lot of those iconic 80s bands from that, that kind of formed that movement that we alluded to a bit earlier on yeah. with kind of um, train spotting and that sounds so really similar in that sense. He um he really likes picking his soundtracks thematically. They always kind of make sense with what's on screen. He'll never just pick a song 
that's just a song to play. It always has to kind of come into it. As I said before, like the ghost town aspect, like the suburbs of London are literally a ghost town. Um, it comes into it comes into play at the end as well, with the, which we'll get into in a bit with the Don't Stop Me Now number. They're literally telling the zombies, don't stop me now. They're trying to win this fight. So that, that song actually literally plays into what's happening. Yeah. Um, I think the music really plays into that across all of those films, those three films, thematically there is kind of some level of corruption or horror, sci-fi disruption occurring mm. on screen. And, mm-hmm. yeah, that's played out really, really ironically in the sound. And then Shaun of the Dead is such a, um interesting case study, I guess, for the height of zombie film popularity. Yeah, well, I mean, the title, Shaun of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, Dawn of the Dead came out the same year. Um, the, the remake, um, of the original movie. Um, and the, the, the two films are so different. Like Dawn of the Dead opens with a, like a Led Zeppelin song for whom the bell tolls Metallica. <laughs> um, and there's just like heavy guitars and there's, um, people shooting zombies in the head. And there's, that's as the movie opens, this movie opens with a dude just walking through the street, getting a Cornetto. But that's what I love it. It's so dry. It's such it's dry. It's extremely Britishly dry. I think yeah. everything about why it is so dry is because of the sound. I think that's mm. kind of like what ties it all together in the end. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the I think this movie, it uses music really intelligently too. Um, if we're talking about the key moments that I love, there's a TV sequence at the start, um, which is really, really amazing, where Sean's channel surfing and he literally looks like a zombie and there's the parallels. But he's flicking through the channels and each time he changes the channel, what um, the person is saying creates this new sentence. So they're, you know, talking, he's watching the soccer and then that says something and then they flick to the news. Football. And then they flick to the songs and they say, there's panic on the streets of London. And you kind of, it's a great joke. It's, so um, it's, it's a great so use of, of soundtracks. Mm. Um, there's also like a dance sequence in this movie at the end with uh, Don't Stop Me Now, <laughs> mm. uh, which we're going to play in a sec. But um, yeah, that, that, um, kind of synchronized movement with music is something that Edgar Wright loves, and we're going to get into that after we play this uh, song by Queen. Hey, Erin. Yes, Paul. What does OST stand for? I'm really glad you asked. It stands for Original Soundtrack. Oh, cool. Is there like a podcast for this or something? Or there is. You're listening to it right now. I'm what? <sighs> Go to Mum's, kill Phil, Sorry. grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? That right there was Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. You're here on OST Original Soundtrack with Aaron and Paul. Woo! So we're just talking about some Edgar Wright. We're probably talking about the most British Edgar Wright film. We're going to move on to his more... English. English his more Hollywood adventure with Baby Driver, which um, only came out really recently. It's kind of a big a big hit when it when it came out. Uh, so just last year, it stars um, Ansel Elgort of um, The Fault in Our Stars fame, uh, redacted Kevin Spacey, uh, John Hamm, mm. Jamie, <laughs> Jamie Foxx, John Bernthal, and Lily James. It features a really, really uh, crazy amount of music with music by T-Rex, Beck, Focus, 
um, Simon and Garfunkel with their actual song called Baby the, Driver. The namesake of the film. Um, and there, have, there was some original music by Sky Ferreira and Run the Jewels as well mm. in there. Um, the plot is very simple, similar to Sean, Sean of the Dead, um, a talented getaway driver who deals with his tinnitus. So he, um, he was in a car accident as a kid, so he has constant tinnitus. Uh, he listens to music to get over his tinnitus and gets tangled up in a really dirty crime ring. But wouldn't that make it worse? I mean, I'm ignorant here to the science of ears, but... Um, I think it's more of like a comfort thing. Just I for think... comfort, it's emotional as yeah. opposed to... Yeah, um, okay. it, it's a part of the film's plot, but I think... Hmm. Um, just, just one slight bone to pick with it, that's all. Yeah, it's, thinking... it's probably brought up a lot of um, good talk about tinnitus, and maybe <laughs> some people were more aware of tinnitus, tinnitus now because activists. of the movie. Yep. <laughs> um, this movie's really special uh, in a way that it's kind of edited directly to the soundtrack. Um, it was edited on the fly as well, so it was actually edited on site. Um, so they fart out the picture, put it on that. a USB, plug it into the computer and start editing um, straight away, which is a really interesting editing style that kind of comes out during the film. Um, so usually, I guess, when a movie's edited, the music's put onto the visuals, yeah. but in this way, the visual, visuals were actually made to fit the soundtrack. Do you think it works? Just like uh, objectively? It's hard to notice sometimes. Um, I, watched a, I watched a video on YouTube the other day that was called Everything Right with Baby Driver, because it's a parody of this YouTube series. It's like everything wrong with. Um, they were pointing out all these points where the music lines up with the soundtrack. And when I watched it, I really didn't notice. I think you have to kind of look at it directly. You have to like study the film to really find all the points. Because it's really subtle. Because it's even... There's points in the opening sequence where um, lyrics from the song are graffitied on the wall. Mm. Um, and when the camera swings by them, you, you read right. them in time with the music. But... Unless you're like fine tooth comb and you're watching it with a microscope, I don't think you'll really notice that. But that's kind of the cool thing about it is that it, it's all very subtle and it's all very kind of runs under the radar and you see it um, implicitly more than explicitly. I think that's really interesting. I guess, again, not, not really a film that I engaged with that much when it did come out, um, but was very aware of, I guess, the critical response to it being very... Mm. Um, very much in the the thumbs up category, though. Really, but four. it's it's so interesting because in terms of Edgar Wright, you know, it got like eighties and seventies out of a hundred, mm. um, and that's low for mm. him. That it's it's it was as like least critically liked, but it was still really loved, which is really interesting. Thematically, it's not yeah. In terms of story and plot, it's not obviously as dense mm, no. <laughs> or hard to um, yeah. digest or, or it's complex. Um, but I mean, easy to follow quite if you're into the sound side of things and the and uh, composing and things like if that. If you're a fan of music, it's a film you like need to watch. Yeah. I think because um, Edgar Wright, he, um, he said this before, he's a big fan of Aussie music. Um, it, I find it weird that he didn't just include <laughs> one, you know, he's a big fan of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard and Pond. I was like, oh, where's the cameo of, you know, a Gizzard song or something. Um, and it's really interesting how he, he just didn't put uh, what songs about driving, like Shut Up and Drive by Rihanna. or That would have been a nightmare, uh, like an absolute What's another suicide? drive song? Um, Life's a Highway. You know, he could have done that. He could have really could have done that to us, and that would have been would have been horrible. But he he likes to he put lots of not very well known songs that fit really well with the movie mm. in it. Um, like I don't even know Focus 
They're mm. like some psych psych rock band. Um, and they have this song called Hocus Pocus and it features in the movie. And it's so weird. I would have known it, known it any other way. I think the genre exploration is really diverse, which is awesome. I think the kind of the distinctions between what would in the movie world be diegetic sound and then the non-diegetic sound of the music being inserted in post is really fascinating mm. as well. Because like, um, Baby's a musician too, yeah, the character was, Baby. Yeah. He um, records, it's kind of gross, it's kind of really weird side of his character where he records people in public and then he takes them home and he remixes them on his on his portable um, <laughs> tape maker, which is cool, but he that, that becomes a pop point in the film, but... Um, it's so weird. He's such a weirdo, and he makes all these remixes. That comes into the soundtrack too, because they actually made um, real remixes um, of lines from the film, which was cool. Um, Not the first to do that, though. I think, no. but it's still a really cool um, element, an extra added element to what a movie soundtrack can be. Hmm. I think it's super interesting. I mean, I, I think having watched it, the most captivating scene for me is the opening. Oh, I mean, you don't even have to go to the cinema to watch it. That was the trailer. Yeah, I know. They didn't. They didn't. But I mean, that's the that's I don't know. That kind of speaks for itself in a way. In, <laughs> in a terms way, of my uh, opinion yeah, of the, the film. Yeah. The first six minutes are the most novel and intriguing part. Yeah. And then from there, it kind of plays out like a classic Hollywood film. It's mm. like the nineteen fifties. It's like if you watch like Casablanca, that love story plays the same as Baby Driver. It's really strange, mm. um, without the affair and all that. But maybe you know. In terms of the love story, it's so one-dimensional. It's so strange coming from Edgar. Anyway, um, yeah, the opening scene, uh, which we're going to play the song from that scene, Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. That is a really iconic scene. There's also a scene in the film, the second heist they go on, where um, Baby tells everyone to bring Michael Myers masks, like from Halloween, um, and they they bring uh, Austin Powers masks because Mike Myers. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would do. That's what I would do if someone put me in that situation. um, They have to rob a bank wearing um, Austin Powers masks. It's great. That's where the British side comes in um, of Edgar's jokes. Um, English. There's also also a song, um, Was He Slow, um, which has redacted Kevin Spacey in it. Um, Anyway, we're going to play you uh, the opening song of the film, which is Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. You're listening to OST, your original soundtrack on Sin Nation. Do all your stories end up with somebody dying? (laughs) Guess you just got to find out, huh? (laughs) That was Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion from the Baby Driver original soundtrack. We're done with Edgar. We're putting Edgar Wright. We're, we're putting the England aside, the two English <laughs> directors, Good. Um, which everyone should do. And we're moving on to Ooh. The, Ooh. the the States, the place that was technically born from England, the United States, <laughs> with uh, Quentin Tarantino and his kind of earlier catalogue of movies, starting off with Pulp Fiction, which I guess is mandatory when you're a, a film fan. You have to like Pulp Fiction in mm-hmm. some sense. I'm like wincing over <laughs> Um, so this came out in 1994. It stars Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta, Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman, Tim Roth, Phil Lamar, Ving Rhames, and Christopher Walken. It features... Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. I'm Walken. It uh, features music by Neil Diamond um, and Dick Dale as well. Um, and basically the plot is Vincent and Jules drive around places and talk. Yeah. 
Actually, that's probably the best <laughs> review of Pulp Fiction I've heard in quite a long time. Um, and that's, I guess, why the film is so uh, popular for its time. I really don't want to get on a, um, a soapbox and just say that this movie is the best film ever made because I don't agree. Uh, I don't think it's the best film ever made, but I can see the importance of it um, and the importance to how Hollywood directors looked at dialogue and mm. soundtracks and how it can make a movie good in the way that it does in Pulp Fictions because the driving force of the movie is its dialogue yeah. um, between Vincent uh, and Jules, the two main characters, who are just kind of going out in the hit to kill someone. They're trying to find someone, and it's just like what the whole movie is. Um, so it's really great for that, and it, it was it was quite influential. I think a lot of the sense. films that we have been looking at, are, you know, they're coming from, for with the exception of Baby Driver, maybe they're coming from a roughly similar kind of period or at least inspirational period of film. Mm. And then, I mean, you know, Pulp Fiction, incredibly overrated in a lot of conversational spaces in film and film students and Tumblr fanatics often cry (laughs) over how great it is. But, um, yeah, it definitely is important, I think, to acknowledge its game-changing factors in terms of, um, especially if we look at independent cinema, um, the directors that we've looked at have all come from independent backgrounds. Um, So... I think, yeah, it's important to acknowledge it as a bit of a catalyst for that kind of movement of of these tropes that we see in independent cinema and then, I guess, them getting a bit of a spotlight in, in mainstream media today. Yeah, funnily enough, not the most, like, indie cast you'd expect um, from a movie either, like, or John Travolta especially, um, coming off the heels of Grease and Saturday Night Fever in the 70s, mm. and then kind of not doing much and then coming to Pulp Fiction, I kind of feel like um, this movie kind of gave actors that kind of second chance to do something indie, which is really cool. Um, But with the soundtrack, um, I kind of wish I had a penny for the amount of times I've walked into a vinyl store and have seen the vinyl record for this movie's soundtrack. I'd probably be able to replace the money I lose on vinyl with the amount of pennies I'd have. Uh, the record is extremely popular and most collectors have it in their soundtrack, uh, in their collection. I think every person who, who, <laughs> um, is a fan of this movie has the, the poster of Uma Thurman on their wall as well. Yeah, really, um, same. every, <laughs> every, you did. <laughs> I know, did. I know, I acknowledge it. I'm a different person <laughs> now. Um, the soundtrack also has a really interesting touch that Tarantino still does with his soundtracks. Um, it has clips from the movie in it. Yeah. Which um, I guess we talked about with Baby Driver. That's more of a kind of remix side of it. But in this, the dialogue in this film is so iconic, like with the Royale with cheese and the Bible verse, the Ezekiel 2517 scene. Um, it was so popular that they just, you know, had to put it on the vinyl, on the yeah. album. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, di- the dialogue is fundamental to the success of this film, and it's obviously the reason it, Pulp Fiction became such a cultural touchstone. But that idea of, if you think what you've just mentioned there about, like, remix, and you think about remix culture in film soundtracks versus what, I guess, I mean, w- was that an original concept at the time when that soundtrack came out? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh I think back 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 in the days like 60s and 70s you'd have records that have dialogue on them that'd yeah. be purely dialogue. Yeah. Um that was a whole thing with comedy albums and um So is it kind of that it's more so that retro resurgence that we I get so. that kind of 20 wave cycle that, that we see all the yeah, time. Yeah, that's in- what Tarantino is all about. He's yeah. still about 
bringing back analog film yeah. and he's probably a vinyl fanatic too. Um, all of his movies kind of at, at, at their center kind of look at Hollywood in a way as well. Um, so I guess it, it kind of makes sense. Mm. It, it, it's, it's so weird when you look up, obviously on vinyl, it's, it's a bit better, but when you look up the Spotify playlist and there's just a 20 minute, 20 second snippet of talking from a movie and it just kind of pops up. Doesn't quite make sense on Spotify, does it? No, or any other streaming service. Um, it's, well, because it, it it makes the vinyl feel like the movie. You're watching like a tiny version of the movie, really, when you're listening. Mm, yeah, I guess it does play into that kind of yeah uh, why people like vinyl so much. And I mean, I'm not a collector myself, but I totally understand why people are into it. It's like, so fun. Yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> it's it's the experience, right? I mean, I am a sucker for a good old fashioned CD, like. Mm. Uh, you listen to an album from start to finish. It's about the experience of the whole artwork. And I guess yeah. it's really interesting to think about how soundtracks exist as independent art from the films that they are, you know, woven throughout, which I think yeah. is really interesting. And the fact that people still um, acknowledge that and enjoy that. Um, I think it's great. Yeah. Um, the Every JB has a, a kind of like, own space for soundtrack albums it's so popular um there's you know other soundtracks that have come out recently like the the black panther one as well that's just yeah made people fall in love with soundtracks all over again it's really yeah, yeah. happy we're doing this show because which is good because i mean yeah if you definitely look at the gap i mean between there's obviously a lot happen between pulp fiction and black panther and they're, oh, probably, they're really yeah. not comparable in in many ways but just from a kind of abstract level of thinking here or just maybe like a a broader lens, the attention to detail in soundtracks in in contemporary cinema mm. is something that is so important to, I guess, the broader cultural commentary around cinema mm. and around film Definitely. and around sound. Yeah. Like without without a good soundtrack, I don't know what's the point. Yeah, because you know, we can talk about this for ages, but you know, we could it create it would create such a different edge to the movie if the movie didn't have songs like. Um, Miserloo by Dick Dale, which we're about to play. It might have felt like a completely different thing. If this song sounds familiar to you, uh, it might be because it was sampled in a Black Eyed Peas song called Pump It. Um, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Um, so uh, Black Eyed Peas took this song with uh, complete liberty. They actually um, didn't even write their own um, musical motifs to it. They just took what's in this song. Um, so if it sounds similar to Pump It, that's because Pump It came first, and it's the more original thing. <laughs> this is OST, original soundtrack with Aaron and Paul on Sin Nation. Well, you got to have an opinion. I mean, do you think that God came down from heaven and stopped... Oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. Shit, man. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck you do that? Pump It Louder. That was Mizzaloo by Dick Dale here on uh, OST, original soundtrack with Aaron and Paul. Um, I hate you. <laughs> we're going to jump into our very last movie. It's another Tarantino film. It came out not too long before two Pulp Fiction, two years only, uh, 1992's Reservoir Dogs. This one has a very similar cast. Tim Roth is obviously a favorite of Tim, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino himself stars in this uh, with as Harvey himself. Keitel. Uh, as himself with uh, <laughs> Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi. Um, Steve Buscemi being probably... 
uh, my favorite cast member of this movie. Steve Buscemi's always lovely in everything he's in. He's the best cast member of any movie. I love Buscemi. Um, this song, this movie features Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel. And suck this, Marvel fans. It features Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Suede. 20 years before Guardians of the Galaxy came out. So yeah. there you go. Uh, it also has Coconut by Harry Nielsen, which we all know. You put the lime in the coconut. Eat it all up. So I, I confess during the break to Paul that, um, and you're so lovely. You're, you're so lovely. I confess that I'd never seen this movie. I had somehow managed to avoid watching Reservoir Dogs. And you, you, just, you just stared blankly and you went, okay. That's fine. That's cool. You're so accepting for Man, a that's film cool. Student. Like film watching is your own experience. And that <laughs> I sound like uh the guy from Wayne's World. That's just wrong. Um Can it, we do the Wayne's World soundtrack? Yes, that's please? happening later on. God. Don't don't you don't you worry, that's happening later. <laughs> so so um, I guess the plot real quick as well for those who uh, haven't seen, like myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same as Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it's, it's just exactly. like men fight each other over a pl- priceless diamond. Um, um, so it's kind of like, I feel like this movie came out in a time where the kind of like five guys movie was a big thing. If yeah, that makes okay. sense. Yeah. The usual suspects had come out not long after. Before the, we, before yeah. we move too far away from, I just want to go on a quick tangent. What's the movie? What's the Looney Tunes movie with, um, what's his name? Michael Jordan. No, 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 no. Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser. Back in action. Back in action, and yeah. then they they look for the diamond. The, yeah, those, like, the in the Amazon yeah. jungle. Okay, or so they're just like I'm. I'm literally just making the that same point. Movie. I'm literally just making. I'm throwing um, it out. Well, there. funny thing about Reservoir Dogs, there's a character called Mr. Pink and Mr. White. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. Why are we talking about Breaking Bad now? Because that influenced Breaking Bad. These characters. Right. So it had nothing to do with my comment about no. Looney Tunes. Okay, you're a really good listener. I'm a um, fantastic listener. Anyway. Why did we choose this film, I guess, to look at? Um, um, I don't really think Reservoir Dogs is one of Tarantino's best, which is why when you said you haven't seen it, I was kind of like, that's okay. Um, well, you like that regardless of what I... I haven't seen a lot of films that I probably should yeah, have seen. Yeah, but um, as I said, like it, it, you, don't, you don't have to see all these films. No, I but know. There, I think but there are some that you... You, you should very much see. But it is interesting how this is one of those movies for, amongst film buffs, and I think particularly for, again, we're on a theme here, it's soundtrack. Yeah. Film critics and film enthusiasts turn and go, oh, you haven't seen this movie? Yeah. This is like, this is where it all started, man. <laughs> this is where it all began. Um, what I What I do like actually about this movie is that the soundtrack use, I don't know, it, it made me think about this motif in films where it's a very like action movie soundtrack motif where it's it's in the it's in the movie what's it called the king's not the king's speech the king's men oh okay um where there's that scene where um i can't remember his name hugh grant Mm -hmm. i'll say hugh grant beats up a whole bunch of people in a church but the music playing underneath isn't like heavy metal or bassy dance music it's like a classical song Mm. and that's like a subvert of expectation because you expect it to be like pumping music but it's actually just like a mozart song so if we if we were just to to track that why do we expect that you know what i mean because if i think now and i think about all the films where i have seen that where it's been like a classical song under a fight scene Mm. for subversion effect 
I honestly think I've seen more of those scenes as yeah. opposed to like Makes me roll a my Fast eyes. and Furious kind of, yeah. you know, just noise, violent um, scene. It's really interesting, I think, to think it's, that. It's ironic because I think when they put it in, they're like, oh my God, they're not going to expect this. Like, we're going to be playing mm. Mozart under a fight scene. But then you ex- you expect it and you watch it and you go, oh, really? You just did that? Mm. I feel like this movie did that a bit before that whole kind of trend came in with playing Stuck in the Middle with You, a very, a song from the 70s as well that uh, wasn't really in the social or cultural conscience at the time, playing over someone getting interrogated and beaten uh, and eventually, um, yeah, this film's quite violent in the same way Pulp Fiction is, uh, someone gets their ear cut off um, in an interrogation. It's really great. The uh, actor in that scene, Michael Madsen, who's the interrogator, his performance is really great. He gets the guy's ear and he talks into it and he's like, hello. Um, oh, you can't hear me? Yucky. Um, it's very gross. But <laughs> the fact that song's playing over it and not, um, you know, psycho strings or mm. um, loud bassy drums, which you'd expect in an in interrogation scene, really kind of flips the mood and you get a really strange... Also, almost like em- empathetic look towards the main interrogator, which is really strange. Mm. Just, just really quickly as well. Um, if while we're still on the topic of Quentin Tarantino, because I never want to talk about him ever again for the rest of this <laughs> seasonal. Um, if you look at like Kill Bill, yeah, and I don't know. I think Kill Bill for me stands out as one of the the one of his highlights because I think silence is so key. Oh, totally. Yeah. And how interesting is that? Where where you've got like music is so fundamental to something, but then even just like using tools of silence, and, and that has a killer soundtrack as well. But I mean, that you know the the fight scene in the the dojo with mm. just like unrelenting unrel- violence and um, oh yeah, and like silence plays into that tremendously. The... So I think that is just another um, way that subversion can be done. Yeah, and, and it's also a common one as well. It's it's absolutely not. Um, specific to Tarantino's work, but yeah, no, silence is. Uh, maybe we'll do an episode on silence and soundtracks. Can we just do the... that? <laughs> that's what that's what I was um, getting at. That we could just kind of sit here awkwardly for like three and a half minutes, however long a, a song usually lasts, and stare uh, at each other. Silence is a very powerful tool, uh, mm. but sadly we cannot have a soundtrack that's just no music <laughs> for two hours. That'd be strange. That'd be an interesting concept to do. Anyway. Let's chuck uh, a song on. Yeah, let's chuck on uh, Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel, which most people know because of this movie. uh, Because as I said, it wasn't in the social conscience. And now it is. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? That was Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel from the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack by Quentin Tarantino. Well, he did the film, but... I said I wasn't going to mention him again, and I did it <laughs> you again. Did. I hate myself. Rule broken. This is OST, original soundtrack. Yeah. With Aaron and Paul, and we are finished we're for this raps. episode. Yeah, we're wrapping it up. Um, but it's the first of many. The fir- Yeah, we, we have a whole season with you guys for the next couple of weeks. Um, we're going to be looking at a range of soundtracks. So this is just the start. We started a bit um, heavy, I guess, in terms of content and what kind of movies we'll be looking at. I think we're going to get a bit softer next week. We had to get it out of our system. Yeah, so we had, we had to get all the time. patrician discussions out of our system. <laughs> so we're getting it, we're going to get a bit softer next week. Um, we're going to be talking about youth and teen movies. So teen we're going to be looking at kind of three time periods of films. So we're going to be looking at pre-our time, the 80s and what? 90s. What? 
um, the f- the films that were popular when we weren't teenagers, but when our maybe parents or relatives. Just like classic teen yeah. films that have stood the test of time, I guess. Uh, and then we're going to be looking at movies that were real popular when we were teens. And then we're going to be looking at more kind of newer classics that um, will probably, are the next generation will look back and be like, oh, I wish I was a teenager in 2007, oh. um, which sadly enough, people are already doing. Um, so uh, those are the movies we're going to look at. We're going to be looking at, uh, yeah, those like teenage classic films. Make sure that you follow us on socials as well. We have a, have a Facebook page. At OST Sin is our short name if you're looking for us um original soundtrack on facebook um yeah and we do cheeky reveals throughout the week leading up to our shows so stay tuned to our social media on facebook for those and um next week also we should mention that we have a guest coming on with us so we're looking to have guests throughout the season as well to spice it up because paul and i will um probably murder each other if we have to sit here (laughs) together for the entirety of a season so we have a special guest coming in so stay tuned for that. And then also keep an eye out for our podcasts as well. We'll be putting those up on Omni, iTunes, and inevitably Spotify. And if you are listening on a podcast right now, uh, sadly we didn't have music throughout the podcast you listened to. If you want to find it somewhere else, uh, you can go to Spotify playlists that we'll be releasing every couple of weeks um, along with our podcast posts on Facebook. So if you want to find a playlist, just head to our Facebook page which I've already told you before, was OST um, on Facebook. It's pretty easy. Just type in OST, original soundtrack, you'll find it, and then you can listen to all the lovely music we play for you. It's like OST slash original soundtrack. Yeah, OST slash. Probably should have thought that one through a little bit more, made it a bit more (laughs) user-friendly, but that's okay. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Want more from OST? Check us out on Facebook at OST Original Soundtrack.